Hi, I'm Mark Cuban, publisher of Industry Magazine, Inside Film. I'm Jackie Keith, editor of Inside Film. We're self-appointed experts in content and in making each other laugh. Welcome to our podcast, On The Tools, where we recommend things you should watch, listen to, read or scroll through. This week, we're going to talk about podcast Am I Normal, documentary rework, and two books, Secret Women's Business and Luster, and social media star, Boy With No Job. Have I? No, I've always worked. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, like just, a good boy. A good boy. I need the legal tender. <laughs> Has like it always eat. been legal tender? It's always been legal tender. Yes, <laughs> I don't want anyone knocking on my door. Thanks. <laughs> they all do though. <laughs> uh, so, what are we listening to? Um. So, yeah, there's this British data journalist that I follow on Instagram. Uh, so this is a bit of a, what I've been scrolling through and what I've been listening to. So her name is Mona Shalaby, and her work has appeared in places like The Guardian, The New Yorker, The New York Times. Essentially, she takes, like, pretty complicated issues and illustrates them into, you know, either graphs or images, and she's got a really unique drawing style. It's really cartoonish and bright, and it's often often they're really fun and funny. She's um, like a modern-day Mr. Squiggle. <laughs> if Mr. Squiggle helped you understand what was going on between Israel and Palestine or how COVID spreads, then yes. I think, I think she should bring out the blackboard, <laughs> the cranky blackboard. Do you upside him? down, upside down. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, like I really like Mona and I don't know if this is just me or something that other women do or even other men do. But I would hedge that most people that I follow on Instagram that aren't my actual friends are women around my age that I admire or I think are cool or whatever for whatever reason, like they're funny or they're frank about sex or other things that women are not supposed to like, have good style, good taste, whatever it is. Like they're the kinds of women that I would like to think if I knew them in real life we'd be friends, but I'd probably be too shy and starstruck to actually speak to them. And you'd probably be disappointed. (laughs) Never meet your heroes. Never. (laughs) Um, But anyway, Mona's just started this podcast with TED Audio Collective of, uh, so TED of TED Talk fame. So it's called Am I Normal? And it sort of explores how numbers can help us understand the world around us and where we fit in, but also the limitations of data. So some of the topics explored so far are how long it takes to get over a breakup and if you're like me, you never get over it or if how many friends you need. Um, Does she, what, and she, (laughs) she demonstrates that with, what, drawings? No, so it's a podcast. It's a podcast. So she, so... She in the first episode, she's broken up with her partner and she's sad and she wants to know how long it's going to take her to just feel, you know, normal again and not upset anymore. So she talks to like various researchers about how long it normally takes people to recover from a breakup. And she talks And how to, long and how long does it take? Well, apparently it takes less 
they did a study, but then this is they go into it where the study is kind of flawed and has limitations. But apparently, it takes less time than people think. So people will stay in relationships that are past their use by date because they think the breakup is going to be so terrible, but actually it's not necessarily as terrible as they might imagine. Like we can survive in this world. But she also interviews her mom, who's this kind of cantankerous gynecologist. And that's really funny. Um, But the, the second episode, she talks about French. So how many friends do you need? And she's just moved back to London from New York and, She's in her early 30s and all her friends' lives seem to have moved on. Like they've all partnered up with babies and she isn't. So she's kind of lonely and she wants to know how many friends adults are supposed to have. And apparently oh. most humans have around 150 friends, which Do seems they? insane. <laughs> they, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe. I feel, I'm going to go see someone. I feel really unpopular after listening to this. <laughs> 150 friends. Yes, but at various varying levels of closeness. And, you know, again, she talks to scientists about this and her mom appears again even more so, which this time, which is like the highlight for me because she's really funny. But I think the f- idea of friendships waning is something that definitely a lot of people can relate to in the pandemic. How many friends do you have? <laughs> <laughs> Come um, on, don't be shy. <laughs> Well, apparently you have. This that they talk about it. So the idea of friendship in concentric circles. So you have one and a half people are your best, most special people. That might be your parents or your romantic partner. Then you have five intimate friends, fifteen best friends, fifty good friends, and one hundred and fifty just friends, and five hundred acquaintances. Um, and really, fifteen best friends. See, I think I've maybe I've only got fifteen. <laughs> God, I think I've probably got three best friends and, yeah. they're, pain- and they're painful. There's just times like, leave me alone, I, don't I, ring me. Hopefully they're not <laughs> listening right now. Oh, yes, I love you all. You're my best friend. <laughs> I don't know. And so apparently, but apparently this 150 number is really consistent in populations. Like it come, the scientists were like, we kept coming back to this number because it seems to be that, you know, the number of like people in an office or in communes, in militaries, Christmas card lists. They even mentioned Neolithic farming villages in the Middle East. But I think, so one thing that Mona talks about is that there's limitations to this sort of, these numbers, but also... You can think of friendship in quality. They've done studies on the qualitative nature of friendship. So it's you can have three factors, which is someone to talk to, someone to depend on, and someone to have fun with. So then Mona talks about the fact that, you know, her friends in London who are still her really best friends that she's known her entire life, they're someone to talk to and someone to depend on, but she doesn't necessarily have friends yet to have fun with. So she needs to sort of find someone maybe in the outer circle that she can just, you know, go out and be a floozy with. So, yeah, it was interesting. Makes me reflect on friendship. I definitely feel like some of my friendships are not as strong as they were through the pandemic, and then some of them are better. So I, I have to say I compartmentalise my friends. Compartmentalise <laughs> your life. Compartmentalise <laughs> my life. You know, I have friends to go out. To dinner with and friends who I ride motorbikes with, um, cerebral friends. But yeah, I don't. I don't think I've ever put them all in one room. 
<laughs> what would happen if you did? <laughs> I don't know. I'm scared. It frightens me. They'll, you know? Do they all know different sides of you? Is that what that's about? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, like, I never really gave it a lot of thought until you uh, – Start talking about this. This, this is actually <laughs> this is actually a therapy session. So, <laughs> oh, where's my health insurance? <laughs> so I'm going to, you know, after this, I'm going to go onto my Facebook and sort of have a look. I know it really sort of- started to make me think about that and the idea of like I don't want to rank my friends. It feels really weird, even though I'm sure that we all sort of do that anyway. Like I, I. I Speaking of friendships waning, I used to be friends with someone who at his birthday party, he would say this birthday party for the the dinner will only be my first tier friends and then we'll go out for drinks afterwards and then the second tier friends can come. So he was quite blatant (laughs) about that existing in his life, but where maybe some of us don't actually say that, but we might think it. (laughs) Sounds to me like a wedding. You can come, you can't. Yes. You know, I, I would, you know, I'd be scared that would leak out. Um, yeah, very strange. But I'm definitely going to count the number of friends I have and um, I'll get back to you on that, <laughs> see how I perform in the friend ranking stage. Um, so I've been watching quite a bit of stuff, um, but one of the things that sort of jumped out at me uh, is – I'm always have been uh, very interested in startups, Um, ridiculous amounts of money, ridiculous effort and so on. So um, this particular, Ed Rosneen uh, made a documentary about a startup called, uh, and the show's called WeWork. Um, It's crazy. Um, So it follows this guy called Adam Neumann, um, who's, I think he's Israeli, um, quite a tall guy, a lot of presence. He's kind of part CEO, part cult leader. Um, <laughs> it kind of looks like Jesus as well. He looks like Jesus. Yes. He's, uh, so anyway, <clears throat> it's kind of interesting and, you know, it was like Sydney maybe 15, 20 years ago where there were like large buildings sort of scattered all throughout the inner city um, that were unoccupied. And so basically, Adam, uh, the whole premise of his business is going out, finding that those buildings and converting them into um, office space. And so he was really renting out cubicle-style office um, for creatives and freelancers um, in buildings which he bought uh, short leases on on borrowed money, um, but it was really funky. I mean, you know, he sort of stripped them out and a lot of glass, a lot of light. Um, you had all these groovy hangout areas, so, you know, it would facilitate collaboration, uh, which was a great idea. And so, you know, they had table football and, you know, there was coffee and snack bars and I think beer even. It was um, kind of an interesting thing. But also he made, he was very successful in making um, people feel like they were part of some kind of experiment in communal creativity, um, which is kind of interesting. But anyway, he he kind of was like a Steve Jobs um, 
really interesting guy. Um, he threw on these summer camps as well for <laughs> his staff, which were like big frat parties slash burning Like man. a festival. <laughs> a festival. And uh, I think he gave everybody the uh, title of CWO. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's Which a bit cheeky. I would not put on my business card. <laughs> no, see, we are. Um, and it was kind of interesting because, you know, on paper, and I think he sort of rolled out the business in 2010. So technically, like if he did that now, you know, I mean, post-COVID, people kind of working remotely, um, it could work. And I think the business is still working, but, you know, a unicorn, you raise a billion dollars and I think he got to some crazy level of $48 billion. Um, and he had his wife, um, <laughs> who's related to uh, Gwyneth, Gwyneth Paltrow. Paltrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, she's just like, I don't know, how would you describe her? She's definitely got him on a leash, like <laughs> I would say. Like he is – well, did you – you mentioned that he also – he expands the WeWork idea and creates We Live, which is almost – We like, Live. Which is almost like a giant <laughs> youth hostel. So there's people working in WeWork, going back and living in um, We Live. And then the- but you can only live there by invitation. So he interviewed – Yes, if I you were about- cool enough. Be cool enough. That was it. <laughs> And then the, um, the wife wants to create We Grow, which is basically a very expensive private school with the idea that normal private schools are not good enough in New York. Um, so it gets to a very, feels a bit like they want to take over and we the world. Well, and, and I think, you know, it was kind of, I think it raised eyebrows and a lot of those big real estate families in New York thought it was a great idea. Um you know, and then there's a, I think a, a multi-billion-dollar investment uh, guy. I think SoftBank came in and basically um, this guy Masayoshi Son had given him, I think, four billion dollars to do this thing. Uh, and then I think you know people were starting to ask questions about cash flow and whether it was sustainable. Um, and then so where it really came unstuck was that. Um, they were, right, they were doing an IPO and uh, he'd basically written this prospectus uh, that a lot of the journalists said it was written by someone who's shrooming <laughs> <laughs> and that the emperor's nudity was now impossible to ignore. So it kind of went a little bit pear-shaped. But the interesting thing was that didn't appear that he'd broken any laws. It was just that, you know, he had the gift of the gab. Um, it's very charismatic, presence, yeah. Very charismatic. Um, and then I think in the end, um, this this Japanese banker, uh, Masayoshi-san, basically gave him $1.7 billion to piss off. <laughs> I think I would like a golden parachute like that. Um <laughs> So, you know, he took his money and kind of disappeared. Um, and now he's living, I think, in South America. You know, I think his net worth is about $750 million. And, you know, a lot of people think that he'll come back. But it was interesting that <clears throat> it was like a cult in it the really sense was. that people 
were in love with him, with the concept, with the ideas. Um, and then when it all ended, it was just, you know, it was a, there was so much carnage, emotional carnage, but fascinating uh, documentary, really well done, um, very funny uh, and interesting because it does get behind the scenes and they interview some of the people who worked with him. Um, yeah, he was definitely shrooming. I think. <laughs> It does make you think about the nature of work because, say, at those frat parties, there's thousands of people and they're all screaming, we work, we work. (laughs) And I am trying to imagine myself (laughs) screaming, uh, like, my company's name at this sort of event and I just don't think I could ever do that with enthusiasm. Not that I don't like my job, I do, but I just think it's all a bit strange. And then one part that also sort of gives away how revered in a strange way that he is, is that the, a journalist comes to the WeWork office to interview him and they have a barista there and the journalist orders a cappuccino and Adam orders a latte. And then the cappuccino comes out and then Adam takes it and the journalist says, no, sorry, that's mine. And he says, no, but that's a latte. Now, I, I guess... English isn't his first language and perhaps he got confused about the difference between cappuccino and latte, but no one that works at WeWork decided to correct him, so they just renamed lattes, uh, cappuccinos lattes at WeWork, which is insane. Shroomy. Shroomy. Um, I sort of stumbled on a book that is self-published, but it's really, really interesting. Um it's written by a woman called Pauline Saxon. Uh, the title of the book is called Secret Women's Business. Um, it's interesting for a lot of reasons. So the background to this woman is that she lived in Israel, was married, working. Uh, the marriage fell over. She came back to Australia where her family lived. Uh, no relationship, no job at home, and her mother or well, the family were in the rag trade and they made lingerie, basically, and she had a shop. So thought that it would make sense for Pauline to become occupied and so she went in. and Anyway, and she had a natural ability, you know, great taste, a knack, um, and was interested in people. So, you know, she's very successful in that industry now, um, has a shop, but the book kind of highlights um, her clientele from the perspective, you know, and I never think about it. I think lingerie, or as you and I call it, lingerie. Lingerie. You know, I don't, I never give it any thought, but, you know, with Pauline. You never give it lingerie thought. I don't think there's a man on earth that doesn't give lingerie thought. So anyway, (laughs) Pauline, Pauline, you know, there's women who have survived cancer, have had double mastectomies and not feeling beautiful and will come in and then there are women whose, you know, relationship has fallen over or, you know, they've discovered the husband's been having an affair. Um, a myriad of reasons. Anyway, so she goes into those stories and they're fascinating, completely fascinating, uh, very moving and... You know, she's almost like a therapist mm. and, you know, non-judgmental. But her claim to fame is that she can bite 
through visual assessment, tell you what your bra size is or boob size. Oh, my God. I want to visit the Oracle. (laughs) You should. (laughs) Um, So anyway, and one one of the interesting areas is that she's got, you know, um, a bunch of men and transgender people come in and see her. Um, so now what she does is she sees the men after 5 p.m. And even their stories are really interesting and not what you would think, um, which I kind of find fascinating. So it's not a, a, a sexual thing, but um, really worth a read. Um and I was talking to someone recently, and I think there's talk about the book being optioned, but um, it's online. Uh, fascinating read, and has given me a new appreciation for uh, lingery. Lingery. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you kind of get it. When I was about my early twenties, I sold laundry as well, and it people it's it, people are intimate with you with their intimates, I guess. Um, so I totally get that when, you know, you're standing there half naked and someone's talking to you immediately. I think it's easy just to spill your guts, but, um, mm. yeah, yeah. I, I look, you know, I mean, it's, I wouldn't. So with your newfound appreciation of women's lingering, <laughs> have you ever worn women's lingering? <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> means yes. yes. Once, by accident. <laughs> um, it's I I outsource my laundry, so, you know, I don't wash. and um, <laughs> I don't wash. <laughs> I mean that's, my clothing, right? I outsource, it. <laughs> I, I outsource it. Um, and one day I just had a look in the drawer. It was bare. It was nothing there. So I kind of have a, had a rummage around. Um and anyway, out of sheer desperation, I opened uh, my partner's drawer and had a rummage through her stuff and found, right, what to me looked like lacy boxes, red lacy boxes. Um, and I went, I put them on and went to work. Um, the downside of that decision was that I used to train with one of my colleagues Um and I went to the gym and it was packed and crowded. And when I dropped my pants to <laughs> put on my shorts, uh, my colleague turned around and went, they're pretty. <laughs> the, the entire gym turned around and I was in very feminine laced boxes. <laughs> so that was my one and only time ever. Did you feel uh, pretty? I, you know what? They felt really comfortable. They sort of wicked things away where they should have been wicked from. I love them. That was good. But, uh, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe one day I'll try it again. There's you know. no judgment here. <laughs> no judgment. Anyway, so that's my uh, only time with uh, lingerie. 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 That's correct. <laughs>
so I also have a book. Um, so it's called Luster by uh, Raven Lilani. Um, and there's a bit of a background into why I read this book, but I guess I'll be, I don't know, do you, do you find it easy to read for pleasure? Like, do you read a lot? Yeah, I do. I, I read, well, I mean, yeah, often. Well, you have to for work. Well, that's I, mean, my, I guess that's my point, though, because I think that I read all day long as a journalist and then when I come home and I'm just tired and, and I might even still read the newspaper or whatever, but then I might pick up a book at 11 o'clock and I am feeling sleepy by page two. Like if I go away on holiday, I'll read a lot. And I wasn't always this way. Like when I was a kid, I was a real bookworm and I used to have stack books that I wanted to read in my room and at one point it was as tall as me and did fall over. Um, <laughs> but why, I- <laughs> why can I still visualise that? <laughs> it's like your office workstation. Excuse me. <laughs> There's her Mark likes to go through my desk when I'm not at work and touch my things and I don't That's appreciate it. <laughs> so not true. <laughs> that is... It is true. Um, but <laughs> one thing that has got to be reading recently is that some of our fr- my friends and I started a book club within our WhatsApp group. There's probably about 15 of us. In- so I do have 15 friends, 15 friends in this WhatsApp group where we take turns in suggesting books for each other. I say that though, but it's probably the worst book club ever because even if we read the book, we often never really talk about it at all, even though we read it. Um, so to be honest, it's just one of my friends, Oliver, who's really pushing us forward and bullying us all into picking this book. And he is truly the only person who reads everyone. But so it was my turn to pick and I picked this book, Luster by Raven Lilani. And it's her debut novel, She's 31. And I'll be honest that I picked it because I liked the cover. <laughs> There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with a good cover. <laughs> I'd seen it all over Instagram, posed on hot dog legs at the beach. It was the trendy book in the summer. But it, it won the 2020 Kirkus Prize for Fiction, so it's trendy but hopefully good. But um, Luster, Luster is about Edie. She's a 23-year-old broke black woman who works in publishing, um, and she starts a relationship with a white man, Eric, who's about 20 years older than her, and he's married and exploring an open relationship for the first time. And I guess there's all these really loaded differences between them, gender, age, race, income. So in the one hand, it's a book about power imbalance, but it's also about loneliness and finding a footing as an adult. And Edie, the main character, I mean, she's isn't always really likeable. She's really funny, but she's very messy and very flawed. And she becomes sort of entangled in the lives of this married couple and ends up living with them when she gets fired from her job. And we then discover that the couple have an adopted black um, black daughter, Akila, who she Edie sort of forms a bond with her um, as she sort of gets stuck with, within this weird relationship. And she also develops a really strange relationship with Eric's wife, Rebecca, where it's sort of antagonist, antagonistic and competitive, but at the same time, almost maternal or sisterly and sometimes it's almost like they're rallying together against Eric Eric. and it's sort of the most interesting relationship in the book but um like plot wise I wouldn't say that this is the perfect novel and beyond Edie I'm not sure that all the characters feel felt three-dimensional but I think what I liked about it best was the prose it's really sharp it's really witty and it moves at this really cracking pace and I know I like a book when I take screenshots of 
certain paragraphs. So my phone is also like a my messy desk in that it is just littered with screenshots uh, of random things. But I, I posted one to my social media because it felt like I was reading my own autobiography. And it, <laughs> <laughs> and it was, uh, I have not had much success with men. This is not a statement of self-pity. This is just a statement of the facts. Here's a fact. I have great breasts, which have warped my spine. More facts. My salary is very low. I have trouble making friends and men lose interest in me when I talk. And so <laughs> that's how she introduces herself. <laughs> Another uh, part, she is about to have sex, but she's sort of feeling like lost in life. And she's like, I consider the possibility of God as a chaotic, amorphous evil who made autoimmune disease but gave us miraculous genitals to cope, which <laughs> I think, yeah, says it all. I mean... It's quite interesting reading this book with some of my friends who are definitely probably, well, they're 35-year-old straight white boys whose books are prob- who probably aren't this book's target demo. But it's interesting to hear their thoughts because actually we did talk about this book. Um, and <laughs> it was interesting because I think we all kind of found it similar, uh, came to a similar conclusion that the plot kind of, it, it, the, I don't know, it's not perfect plot-wise and some of the, ca- the characters are not as complex so one of my friends wrote in the WhatsApp, I like the first part better as well. Ollie and I had a brief chat the other day about some of the other characters feeling less complex. Then I worried it might be problematic for me to critique and analyse a novel written by and about a young African-American woman. Then I thought it was a problem, that I thought it might be a problem. Then I was too confused by my own self-analysis and meta-anxiety. Then I read a book about Martians. <laughs> <laughs> Is the book club still going? Uh, yes, uh, but I haven't read the next book, which is Girl, Woman, Other. It's sort of in the same wavelength of that book. Um, mm. But Sounds like a good read. I'm interested. Yeah, it's, it's definitely worth reading. Um, but we did try to read Les Mis, which I, I had to stop. I couldn't get yeah. I couldn't get through late Mis. The, no. <laughs> <laughs> which is weird because I love the musical, but the fir- the first a hundred pages though about the priest who is in the musical for all of a minute. <laughs> so I thought, okay. And that sort of goes from there. It's a thousand pages long. And I'm really I realize I really don't know a lot about French history and you really need to know a lot about Napoleon to survive Victor Hugo's writing. So <laughs> <sighs> I know we've been talking about um, lockdown and we're out of it now, which is great. Three weeks out. Um, but there was a guy stumbled on um, sort of around about the same time I found the Warwick Thornton's The Beach. Uh, so I was kind of like living, I was interested in how, I guess other people in other cities were coping with lockdown and what they were doing. Um, and so I found um, this guy um, called, uh, his Twitter handle is Boy With No Job. His name's Ben uh, Soffer. Uh, and he's very interesting. He does a lot of memes um, and he had a lot to say around the pandemic and quarantine. Um, remember the toilet roll fiasco? I mean, that was, just like, that was so bizarre. Did you just, hoard toilet paper? No, I didn't. I just don't. It's just weird. I mean, um, but he experienced it too, and he lives in New York, so he's kind of like a New Yorker. Um, and I guess 
if you were afraid of uh, getting COVID, then you know New York, you know, populous, you'd sort of really lock yourself down. Um, and so, <laughs> what I really loved about this guy was that he videoed himself. Um, the depth of his boredom um, using rolled up <laughs> socks as a bowling ball and stacking some tuna cans as pins. I feel like you may have been at the depth of your boredom to find this entertaining. <laughs> it was it was funny in a pathetic kind of way, um, but also confirmed to me the importance of social connections. I mean, I think we're all going a bit mad. <clears throat> and it was kind of interesting. He's He's got a lot to say. And for the record, he does have a job. His job's in advertising. Uh, so he has a lot of funny things to say. and His memes are very clever um, at the moment. So COVID is obviously over and, you know, we're not well, in not, lockdown anymore. It's not over, but yeah. Well, it's not over, but we're not in lockdown. No. I think we're going to somehow get through it. Uh, but he has plenty of things, funny things to say. And right now his focus is, you know, the end times that are currently engulfing the world. So he's got a lot to say about that. Um very, very funny, uh, very clever guy. Um, and, you know, he helped me get through quarantine lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> House arrest. Um, and that's it for me. That's it for me too. Oh, popular. Popular. Was that your phone? You do have a friend. 